Father God, I'm so thankful for these people. My friends, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, and that we get to open a book filled with the words of the creator of the universe. Your testimony is exceedingly broad. And I pray that as we look into the heart of infinite realities, infinitely precious glories, that you would give us eyes to see. There's so many distractions that are pressing in on us from every angle, Father, that you would give us eyes to see with clarity, hearts to receive with joy the great truths that we're going to look at today, Father. Move me out of the way and speak from this book for us, for me, for my friends today. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. So last week we began a a series that we're calling See Him, See Jesus, See God. The aim of uh, the series is really simple. It is uh, to answer the question, why do we read the Bible? Why is it that we have a book filled with words, um, Scripture, And what does that have to do with the life of the believer? What does it mean to have in our possession a book filled with the words of God? So last week, we kind of laid the foundation that the word of God, the Bible, this book, ultimately points to Jesus. Everything in this book points to Jesus, and it points to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. And when it's read, or when it is faithfully communicated, and God willing, that will happen today, a light breaks into our soul and we see and encounter the God who wrote it with the eyes of our heart. And so reading the Bible is how we see God. Reading Scripture is how we see Jesus. And so today we're going to ask the question as we press deeper into this series, excuse me, exactly how important is it for us to read this book? And not just read it, but to see him in it, see Jesus in it. Do we need to regularly as Christians see Jesus in the scriptures, or is this just sort of an extra thing that we have on the side? Um, Is this uh, something that maybe we do at the beginning of our walk with Jesus? Maybe we have to see it, and when we hear the gospel, maybe that's what happens, but then it can take a, a back seat later on in our lives. It becomes less significant, less important, And the answer to that question, I believe, will begin in Deuteronomy. So I want to turn to Deuteronomy 8, if you have your Bibles, and I I hope that you do. We are in a series on reading the Bible, Um, but we'll have the passages here if you don't. Deuteronomy 8. I'm going to paint the scene for you. Moses and the people of God are on the far side of the River Jordan, and they are about to cross over into the Promised Land. Moses will not be allowed to cross over because of his sin. And so he is giving Israel the final words before they go. That's really what the entire book of Deuteronomy is. It is his commendation. What critical things does Moses need to communicate as he's led by the Spirit of God to these people before they pass from their travels and settle in the promised land. So we're going to look at just the first three verses. It says this, Deuteronomy 8, verse 1 through 3. The whole commandment that I command you today, this is Moses talking, 
you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 days, 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Forty years in the wilderness. That's how long they were. A lot of people in this room aren't even 40 years old. I'm one of them, almost 40 years. Um, 40 years. And Moses is really engaging an entirely new generation than the generation that set out from Egypt. These people have only heard of the slavery. They didn't experience it firsthand. 40 years. All those other people had passed away at this time. And that's their life. Walking through the wilderness. And now that's about to change. They're going to have cities and homes, places to live in, the land that God promised them. But Moses, who has been the voice of God for this entire trip, isn't going with them. He's going to die before he enters the promised land, before they enter the promised land. And so Moses wants to make something very clear to the people of Israel before they go in. He wants something very clear to that generation, something that points to the significance of God's word. He says in verse 1, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go into the land and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. So God has sworn by his word, God has given them this land. He's made to them a promise, a, a covenant. That's why it's called the promised land, an oath with their fathers that they're going to get this land. And yet, Access into this land, according to Moses here, will only be theirs if they are careful to do what God, through him, through Moses, is commanding them to do. Be careful to do that you may live and multiply. So there is no land, there is no multiplication, there is no fruitfulness, or even life that you may live if they disregard the commands of God, the words of God, Moses says. And he's saying that these words for the people of Israel, are a matter of life and death. This isn't a game. If you don't have it in your heart to heed the commandments of God, the instructions he's giving you for your better, betterment, you will die, which is why he underscores the importance of this by telling them, remember how God led you through the wilderness. Do you remember how he did this? When God led you through the wilderness for 40 years, his main goal wasn't just transportation to another geographic point. His main goal was to humble them and test what was in their hearts. It's not that he didn't know what was in their hearts, but it is that he wants their lives to be evidence of what realities are inside their hearts. So testing their lives brings to the surface those realities. And in the wilderness, one of the ways he did this was through hunger, because He knows, God knows, what's best for them isn't immediately food. 
It is that they would trust his word. It isn't immediately getting, consuming food, especially in the seasons of ease when food is abundant. It is that they will hold fast to him and trust his word. So he allowed them to hunger. They cry out to him and to show them that he was more than sufficient. He's more than enough. He alone could provide for them no matter the situation. He gives them food from heaven, manna, which means something to the effect of, what is this? I don't know what this is, which he expresses here. This is weird stuff coming from the sky. It's a bread-like food that kept them alive while they were in the wilderness. And there's a reason for this. According to Moses, who is expressing the heart of God to the people of Israel right now, the reason for this is that they would know, that they would know, that they would know that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This was God's purpose and goal in the wilderness. Forty years of God saying, trust me. Trust me. I want you to believe my word. I want you to believe my promises. I am here for your good. I am fighting for you. I keep all of my promises. Don't rely on your own strength. Don't rely on your own wisdom. Trust in me. And in this, God is proving to them You don't live by bread alone. You live by every word that comes from my mouth. But this truth, this reality, isn't just isolated in Deuteronomy. We see it throughout Scripture. One one passage we see it in is Matthew 4. Let me read to you this brief text. This is about Jesus, Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So you know this story. You've heard this story before. There's two other temptations that follow this. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness He spends 40 days and 40 nights there, mirroring the 40 years that the nation of Israel spent in uh, in the wilderness, except this is compressed over 40 excruciating days where he does not eat any food. And so you have to conceive of this. He is on the verge of death, well past starvation. He would be on life support if we were to find him. And Satan comes, the tempter, comes to him and says, if you're the son of God, command the stones on the ground to be loaves of bread. Do that and you'll have food. It's actually, I mean, if you think about it, it's a fair request. Jesus is the son of God. And the stones belong to him. They're his stones. He created them. He made all of them. And just like God commanded through Moses, the people of Israel in the wilderness, Jesus could command these stones and they could become bread like that. In fact, that would be the only difference between the stones and the people is that the stones would immediately obey Jesus. And yet he doesn't. Instead, he quotes Deuteronomy 8, the passage we just read. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The one man who can create food out of stones and has a right to do it, his right, his divine prerogative, says 
No. He refuses. Why? You're hungry, Jesus. You're about to die. Why refuse this? Well, because he says to Satan, man does not live by bread alone. Bread is infinitely secondary to something else. Something else is more important to Jesus in this moment. And that something else is the word of the living God. He trusts his father will provide everything that he needs, no matter what happens. He believes him. And he would rather, in this moment, die than, by creating the food, abandon his confidence in God by relying on his own strength and power to make food out of stones. And so we see, even as we look back through this passage into Deuteronomy 8, we see that even a small part of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 8, as important as it is in its original context to understand all that was going on in the people of Israel and in Moses at the time, it finds its ultimate meaning in Jesus. It finds its ultimate meaning in Christ because he's the center of the Bible. He is the true Israel. The true uh, people of God is, is consummated in him. And he weathers this agonizing season in the wilderness and proves to be faithful to his God trusting in his Father over the needs of his flesh and through that righteousness that we're seeing worked out in the middle of starvation, it's through that righteousness that we have access to the Father, that we have access to the promised land, the final, ultimate promised land, being in the presence of God forever. But that's not the question for today. The question for today is this. Do we live in our lives right now like Jesus here? Do we really believe that man does not live by bread alone, but by the word of God? Or do we feel like in our, in our Christianity, in our, in our living out our Christian life, that the, the Bible is true and helpful, but it's not necessary. It's something I can get to if I've got time, put it on the margins, and if I've got time, I'll bring it in. Um, maybe it was important at the beginning when, when someone preached it to me and I heard the gospel and I was like, I want to I believe that. I, rose my I raised my hand, walked down an aisle, signed a card. But right now it's like, it's a nice thing to have. It's not really essential or needed in my life. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to dismantle that. And that's not true. And I want to ask the question, what does the Bible say about this? What does Scripture say about itself to us and how it's relevant in the life of the believer? And to answer that, we're going to shift gears and go to 1 Peter 1, verse 18. And this is where we're going to camp out today. So if you do have your Bible, 1 Peter 1, 18. The question is, again, for the Christian, is Bible reading necessary? Is it essential? Is it critical for surviving as a Christian in this world? And so I want to set the foundation first with verse 18 and 19. Peter says this, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a, a lamb 
without blemish or spot. So this verse right here, these two verses, are the foundation for everything in the life of a Christian. Peter says, we were ransomed. Ransomed. And not just from our own sin, not just from wrath and hell, not just from everything that we would deserve from disregarding God, disabusing ourselves of God, and saying, I just want to do things my own way, get out of my life. But we were ransomed, according to this, from this devastating cycle of futility that comes from our past, our forefathers. And if you take that back far enough, you get to our original parents, Adam and Eve, the first parents who received the curse of futility in Genesis 3. And so Peter is saying that of those who trust Christ, those who have laid hold of Jesus and said, I want you as a savior, no longer is the futility of the fall our story. It's not part of our story anymore. We were ransomed from meaninglessness, from triviality, from futility. And the cost of our ransom, Peter says here, is beyond our ability to comprehend. The cost of our ransom outstrips all wealth that you can conceive of in this world. We were ransomed, he says, by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, not silver and not gold. Peter uses silver and gold here because he's really trying to press on his readers. And at that time, this was... You had silver, you had gold, you had everything you needed. He's trying to press on his readers that the blood of Jesus is without equal. So think about what Sandra said was perfect this morning. The most perfect thing that you can imagine in the universe that you can lay your eyes on. The most perfect thing that you could have right now in your life. It would make everything better. And Peter is saying, next to the blood of Jesus, it is nothing compared to that. His blood is what it means to be priceless. And yet that is what Jesus paid for our ransom. That was the cost of our freedom. And Peter even says that Jesus isn't like other men. He's not like other men. He's not even simply a sacrifice, someone who could run out in front of a car and grab a kid and save them. We would commend that person. But Jesus is beyond that. He is the perfect sacrificial lamb without blemish and without spot. There's no one like Jesus. He never sinned, never even had a wicked thought or a foul affection, never once. And clearly that wasn't because he wasn't tempted. 40 days of not eating, and then he has to lock horns with Satan. And just as we read, when he was tempted, he continued to entrust his soul to his father and the reason why he believed in his father is because Jesus did not live by bread alone. Jesus lived by every word that came from his father's mouth. And yet there's even more to who Jesus is. Look at verse 20 and 21. It says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So more than simply a, a man who gives his life, more than simply a man who is perfect in every conceivable way and gives his life, 
Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Which is another way of saying that God knew and loved Jesus before the universe existed. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. We saw that last week. Christ is the eternal Son of God, never having come into being, always existing for all time. Yet for us, he was only revealed in the last times, according to to Peter. It says, for our sake, Christ, this infinitely worthy, infinitely precious Savior, was made manifest in the last times. And the reason was so that we would become believers in God through him. Now, last week, we were looking at the first chapter in the, the book of John, and we got all the way towards the end, and we read why John wrote his gospel. Why did John write the gospel of John? He's very helpful to us. He tells us why. He says that in reading his book within the largest corpus of scripture, we would believe that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the son of God, and that through our faith, through believing in Jesus, we would have life. That's the goal of John's gospel. And we said last week that this is really the goal of the entire body of Scripture, all 66 books, is that we would have life through faith in Christ. If we don't have life through faith in Christ, this book is meaningless. Has no, there's nothing good about it outside of the fact that we would have life through Jesus Christ. Eternally, that's what ultimately matters. And that is what we see here. This man, Christ Jesus, was ransomed by his blood. He redeems a people. And though he was dead, God raises him from the dead, gives him glory. And this glorified Christ, he glorifies Christ in such a way that it's clear that this is not a normal, ordinary man. This man is special. He is the son of God, the promised savior in the focal point of all scripture. And it's only through Jesus Christ that we have faith and hope in God. So that's Peter's main point. Now, I want you to think about Peter's audience as he's writing this. this is, he's writing to churches in the dispersion. Churches spread throughout all of uh, Asia and the Middle East and Northern Africa. Churches, people who've been scattered. And the gospel's incarnated in these different cultures. And he's writing them and telling them, about Jesus, about this ransom. They're not too different from us because these Christians who are scattered throughout the dispersion have never seen Jesus with their eyes. They never heard him preach. They never heard him say a word. All that they know is what they've heard through someone speaking the word. That's all that they know about Jesus, the gospel. They never saw him teach. They never saw him rise from the dead. So their only means of seeing him, actually seeing the reality that Peter is painting for them, is through the word. That's the only way that they can see him, which is clear in what Peter says next. Verse 22 says, Of these people he's talking to, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Now he gives them a command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not of 
perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So this purification of our souls happens, he says, through obedience to the truth. Obedience to the truth, which is another way of saying we hear the gospel preached and we believe it. The truth, the reality of, of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross is proclaimed in God's word and we are awakened to believe and trust in him. And it says that this experience happens because we are born again. It's more than simply a decision. Christianity isn't a decisional religion. It's more than a decision. It's more than a change of mind. It's way more than that. Christianity, according to Peter and all of the authors in Scripture, is becoming an entirely new human being. Being born again with new desires, new affections, faith in God's words. It, it isn't simply a figure of speech. There is a reality that is happening here when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Something happens in the soul of the hearer at the point of new birth that Peter says here is even more radical than natural birth, than an actual birth of a human being in the physical world. Natural birth happened through perishable seed. And what Peter says here is what God did in the new birth that came from imperishable seed. It came from an eternal God. You were born of God, John 1 says. Came through the living and abiding word of God. That's the source of the new birth. Everything we just talked about, ransom, trusting Jesus, obedience to the truth, purification, sincere brotherly love, all of that belongs to the Christian from this encounter with the word, with the gospel, with it being faithfully proclaimed or read or understood. That's what happens. And he tells us why in verse 24 and 25. Listen to what he says, Peter. For, saying all that I just said before, now this, all flesh is like grass. In all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So we see here clearly that everything he's talking about has to do with what they heard preached to them. And Peter has just told us, verse 22 and verse 23, that our new birth comes from the word of God. And to prove it, he doesn't appeal to anything practical. Doesn't appeal to an experience either. That they, like a, a tangible sort of weird supernatural experience outside of them becoming Christians. He doesn't appeal to science. He doesn't appeal to math or history. When he's describing what happened to you at the new birth, he appeals to the word of God. Because like we said last week, God is not content with lesser certainties. There's a certainty you can get from science. There's a certainty you can get from history. He's not content with those certainties. He wants you to know. He wants you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt and being willing to die for it. And that's not going to happen with a lesser certainty. And so he, 
Peter here recognizes there's no higher authority. He appeals to the word of God and he quotes the prophet of Isaiah here. Inspired by God, Peter says, all flesh, all perishable seed is like grass. It's like a flower. The glory of flesh is like a flower. The grass grass is going to wither and the flower will one day fall to the ground dead. But the word of the Lord remains forever. It will never die. It will never fall. It will never fail. It will remain forever. It is the living and abiding word of God. Every generation, every generation, if a thousand generations pass between now and the end, all of those generations, this will be true of them that the word of the Lord remains forever. And Peter says this word is the good news. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's how it works. I'm going to describe it again. I know we've talked about it different ways. Person hears the gospel. The reality of what they hear infiltrates their soul like a seed planted into the ground, an imperishable seed. And that seed gives them eternal life. That's what it means to be born again. Faith isn't an intellectual assent to a proposition that you hear or a theological statement. Faith is the response of a soul to the planting of a seed. And that seed is the living and abiding word of God. And that's how someone becomes a Christian But what does this have to do with us? We've been talking about whether or not the the Bible is important. What weight does it have on our lives? And Peter's about to explain that. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, So, having heard all of what I've said, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So he's continuing his train of thought. That's why he uses the word so, which means everything that I just talked about flows into this. Put away all malice, put away all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy and slander, all of these selfish, wicked behaviors, Peter says, put them all away, which if you think back to what we just read in verse 22, it's very similar to what he said when he said, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It's the same thing as putting away malice. He's talking about the same reality. To love someone sincerely is to not feel malice towards them. To to love someone sincerely with a brotherly affection and love is to not slander them. So he's talking about the same thing. It's two sides of the same coin. Both, Both sides have one source, and that source is the living and abiding word of God. It is an imperishable seed that remains forever. This is what initiates our sincere brotherly love. This is what puts away every ounce of malice in our bodies, the word. And we know this because of what Peter's about to say next. Verse two and three, he says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now he's telling us, he's telling these people, his original audience, and through 2,000 years, he's telling us, here's how you love people well. You want to know how to love people well? Here's how. Here's how you put away selfish actions, selfish behaviors. How do you do that? 
like newborn infants, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. And in our longing for that, and in our drinking of this milk, Peter says, it is through the milk that we grow up into salvation. That's what spiritual milk does. And so the question we would have is, what is he talking about? What is the spiritual milk? What, why use this analogy just out of the blue? Well, in the context, it's clear that he can only be talking about one thing because he's only been focused on one thing the entire time, the Word of God. But Peter helps us. This word spiritual in the Greek is logikos. And it doesn't mean spiritual literally. It actually means reasonable or rational. And the ESV uses the translation spiritual here because it's talking about divine rationale or divine reasonableness. But the root of logikos is actually the Greek word logos. Logos, which if you remember last week, we looked at this, that term logos is word. Pure spiritual milk is the word. So the term that Peter, the term that he uses here, the the adjectives he's using to show us the relationship between the believer and the Bible, between the Christian and the living and abiding word. And he says that relationship looks like this. Imagine you are a newborn infant and you need milk. A newborn infant is completely reliant on milk. And a lot of you guys know this reality because we, we, we have a lot of kids here, a lot of young kids. Um, you guys know this very, very intimately right now. A newborn infant is completely reliant on milk. They cannot thrive. They cannot grow. They cannot even live without being fed. If a baby doesn't get milk or some kind of substitute version of milk, they will die. And this is Peter's way of saying, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Spiritual milk isn't optional. It is necessary to survive. And what's more incredible than him just saying, you need to drink the spiritual milk, drink the spiritual milk, is that he doesn't actually say that. He doesn't say drink. It's not that simple. That would be simple. We could just check it off, say, I I drank my spiritual milk today. Peter tells us here to long for the pure spiritual milk. We need to drink it. Absolutely. But more than that, you need to long for it. You need to long for the word of God. The Greek word here is um, epipotheo. And it means to strain after. It means to, to desire greatly. It is a kind of yearning that is emotional and strong and passionate. And it's a tall order because what he's telling us to do here is something we can't do on demand. We can't just produce, produce authentic emotions on, like longing and yearning for something on demand. And he's telling us to do that. And the reason he can command us to do this is because this command isn't for everyone. He, he provides a caveat. The command is only for people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. 
They've tasted his goodness. Long for this milk, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. If you haven't tasted that the Lord is good, there's no way you're going to be able to long for him. There's no way that you're going to be able to long for this milk. It is impossible to long for him unless you've tasted that he's good. And if you've been ransomed by Jesus, his expectation is that you've tasted it. Someone who has been born from the imperishable seed from God, that someone knows at some level the goodness of God because they've tasted it firsthand. And I wonder, for those of you who are familiar with the Psalms, I wonder if you can see why Peter is using this language of tasting that the Lord is good. You may recognize it where it comes from. He didn't come up with this idea de novo. This language he's pulling from Scripture, Psalm 34 is where he's pulling it from. And I'm going to read just verses 8 through 10 so you get the context. Psalm 34, 8 through 10 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is the passage that Peter has in mind when he's talking about what it means to experience the goodness of God in his word, in his own revelation of himself and his purposes. Taste and see, David's saying in the Psalms. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Those who take refuge in him are blessed. Those who fear him lack nothing. They lack nothing. Young lions though they are one of the most competent and capable animals on supplying for their own needs, will suffer want. They will hunger. But the one creature that never hungers is the one who lacks no good thing, the one who seeks the Lord. Seek the Lord that you may lack no good thing. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Does that passage, when, when, when we read it and when we think about what is being said and promised in that passage, does it press on your soul to want that, to desire it, to, to desire the, knowing the goodness of God through his word and in that goodness to lack nothing? To lack nothing because in him you have Everything. My burden for this, for this series, and really, I mean, for this Sunday and, and, and every Sunday that we have where we're looking at this, um, is for us to feel the reality of that passage. For us to feel it. Not just to understand the word, not just to understand the, the idea or concept, but for us to feel the reality. We can understand words in this book for years and never actually feel the reality of it. And the book just sits in the corner of our room unread. I don't know if you've ever um, seen this video online. There's a video online of um, Chinese Christians opening up a box in the middle of a room and it's filled with Bibles. It's their first time that they've actually been able to touch, physically touch a Bible. And um, in this video, the way they swarm the box, and just 
grab the Bible, and some of them are just kissing it and crying. It's convicting. It is convicting to me to see that video. Um, is that how we treat our Bibles? They know something we, we don't know if they're doing that to their Bibles. Is that how we, is that how we as believers and, and people who trust in God treat his word? Or do we, and I'm going to be honest here, do we struggle to give it the time of day? Is it a struggle for us to find time for it? Instead, we just kind of drift here or there. We, we, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on YouTube, we're on whatever. And we're just kind of drifting around. And don't get me wrong, those sites may have their purposes and their functions. But if I can be real for you, just for a second, on the last day, those things will be utterly meaningless except for the fact that they will serve as evidence that it was not for a lack of time that Bibles were unread. And I'm not saying this to guilt trip anybody. I'm saying this because it's real. Our greatest need, our greatest need, the greatest need of our soul is not to understand what political situation is going on right now. It is not to understand who's winning a sports game. It's not video games. It's not any kind of form of entertainment. The greatest need of our, of our soul isn't even theology blogs and podcasts. The greatest need of our soul is to see him in his word, to see him, without which, according to Peter, we will die because man cannot live by bread alone. Long, he says, for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Peter's not saying earn your salvation, merit your salvation through Bible reading. That is not what he's saying. You cannot earn or merit anything in terms of salvation because we are saved by grace. But that doesn't make milk unnecessary. That doesn't. Just like air and food, there are necessary means for living. And one of them is for the Christian to long to know God and his goodness. Everything else in your life, everything else in your life, even the good things in your life, are ephemeral and fleeting. They're going to pass away. And they're going to fail you one day. They're not going to be around forever. They're going to fail you one day. Even things like family and friends who we cherish and love, they won't be around. They're not going to be around forever. Nothing in our lives can provide us with what we need ultimately except for the words of God, which is why Peter calls it the imperishable seed. It will never die. Like Jesus Christ is rooted in eternity before the foundation of the world, it is not going anywhere. And as the passage that we read from Isaiah says, the word of the Lord remains forever the universe can go out of existence and God's word will remain. He will never fail you. He will never fail you. There's, there's not a more unshakable reality than that. Rooted in eternity, going into eternity forever, he's never going to fail you. No matter what any, anyone promises you in this life, he is the only one who can keep his promise. Totally. Totally and forever. 
Psalm 34 says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And I want you to believe that. I want you to believe that today. There's nothing you will lack. Seek him. Nothing in the universe you will lack. And some of you, some of you may never have tasted that the Lord is good. Just to be real. Like some of you may not have tasted that. Some of you may not have experienced everything I'm describing to you is kind of scary, new, weird. You're like, but that doesn't make any sense. But I just want to testify, you are in this room right now and you're watching on the screen or whatever. You're in your room on YouTube. Don't do that. Read your Bible. Um, you're, you're in this room right now. You are in this room right now because God desires for you to see him. That's why you're here. That is why you are here. He wants you to know his realness. He wants you to know his goodness. He's crying out through his word, seek me. And there are some of you in this room who, uh, even though that you do know the Lord is good, even though you, you have had the imperishable seed take root in your soul, there's some point along the way you forgot what it meant. Some point along the way you forgot how good he was. And this is why when you say you believe these things, or when I say I believe these things, sometimes that can feel like theory and principle and not reality, not an experience, not something I feel inside here. It feels like a proposition that I agree with up here and don't feel it here. And I want you to know, <laughs> everything in my heart wants you to feel this. I want everyone to feel this in this church. I want you to feel this reality. And so as we're taking communion in the next few minutes, which is an act where we recall and we remember the goodness of God seen in the ransom of his son, and through taking the elements as believers, we celebrate that and delight in what he did. I'm asking that you, when we take communion, that you disabuse yourself of the lie that tasting the goodness of God in Scripture isn't the most important thing that you can do. It is a lie. It is the most important. There is nothing more important than him. So long for the pure spiritual milk. Ask him, plead with him for the longing and the desperation that you know somewhere inside of you you need. An insatiable hunger for him, that we would need him as a church and individually more than food, that we would desire him more than air, and that we would hang on every single word that he said in his book. Hang on it like it was a matter of life and death. That's my hope, really, for me. That's my hope for you guys. That's my hope for all of the church, is that we would long, I mean, desperately long to see him, fill all of our free time, all of it, with how can I see him just one more time, just a little bit more of him. That's what I'm asking for today. Pray. Heavenly Father, I know that um, everything I say is in vain unless you show up. I know that. I feel the weight of that. That there is nothing that I can say with words 
that communicates the reality that you desire, Father, for each person in this room to experience. And so I'm asking for you to come now. As we worship in song, as we celebrate in communion, I'm asking for you to come by the power of your Holy Spirit. And for, for those who have never tasted that the Lord is good, that this would be the day that the imperishable seed would be planted in soil and that entire worlds would shift around that truth. You are good. And for those of us who have forgotten or who lapse into forgetting or who've just set our Bible in the corner and resorted to getting by, Father, that you would disabuse ourselves, disabuse us of the, the mentality and the lie and the thinking that, that that's not milk that we need and that you would so press on our souls to long for it, Father God, that it would become unavoidable and it would become an addiction that we have to manage and not something that we have to struggle to do. Lord, that's my plea today, Father God, that you would do that. I know that you can. I believe that you can. And I'm trusting that you will in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen.